Okay, we're all set to get started. Thanks for joining everybody uh, to update you on sort of the cliffhanger of last week's uh, study in which I had to leave abruptly because uh, my wife was texting me. I'm in labor, LMAO. Uh, I will tell the full story of exactly what happened on the Sunday stream, so I won't consume much of Robert's time. But uh, it ended up being kind of false, a false start throughout the weekend. But our son was eventually born happy and healthy on uh, on Sunday evening. So that was all a, a great success. Everybody's in good shape. And so we're ready to continue the study uninterrupted. And uh, the only other announcement is, uh, of course, as we enter the Christmas and New Year season here, uh, we will we will do the Bible study next week, the 22nd. So that and that will be the final study of the year. We'll take off on the 29th and we will see you back here for Bible study on January 5th to start the new year. So once again, just no study on the 29th. We'll pick back up on January 5th. And uh, without further ado, Robert has another lesson in Acts for us. Hey, we are going to start by reading the scripture. Uh, remember that there's going to be a chapter um, break, so kind of be ready for that. Here we go. A group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but everything was held in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was no one needy among them, because those who were owners of land or houses were selling them and bringing the proceeds from the sales and placing them at the apostles' feet. The proceeds were distributed to each as anyone had need. So Joseph, a Levite who was a native of Cyprus, called by the apostles Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet. Acts 4, New English Translation Now a man named Ananias, together with Sapphira his wife, sold a piece of property. He kept back for himself part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. He brought only part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Before it was sold, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was the money not at your disposal? How have you thought up this deed in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and died, and great fear gripped all who heard about it. So the young men came, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, but she did not know what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me, were the two of you paid this amount for the land? Sapphira said, yes, that much. Peter then told her, why have you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. At once, she collapsed at his feet and died. So when the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the whole church and all who heard about these things. Now many miraculous signs and wonders came about among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they were all meeting together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high honor. More and more believers in the Lord were added to their number, crowds of both men and women. Thus, they even carried the sick out into the streets and put them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow would fall on some of them. A crowd of people from the towns around Jerusalem also came together, bringing the sick and those troubled by unclean spirits. They were all being healed. Okay, that's the reading for today. We have one of maybe the more memorable stories in the New Testament, the the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Today might feel a little more topical than usual, meaning I I am going to discuss one particular topic at length. But before we get there, let's just kind of go through the passage um, and and then we'll get to that. So the reading today begins with, quote unquote, the good, the good example of things. And then we get to the bad example. And these two are clearly meant to be read together, you know, as form in the form of contrast. So, um, the the passage today begins right after all of the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And there seems to be a, a pattern in Acts that after that happens, then the community experiences power and unity. 
right? We we get this quote unquote ideal community. Uh, the first thing that we are told is that the community is of one heart and mind. Now, this expression is not exclusive to to biblical writers. In fact, the exact same expression in expressions very similar to it, essentially just variations of it, uh, appear in in several ancient texts, particularly in the context of friendship relationships. Okay, so essentially, the ancients would speak of friends as being of one heart and one mind. Now, I think this is uh, quite important to note because today in the church today we often ask. Hey, what does it mean to to be united as a church, right? And I think that sometimes the answer to that question is a little too familiar, uh, in the sense that we we know the answer, we just don't want to accept it. And that is that we should be friends with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I know I know that that sounds easy on paper, but it's not so easy in real life. Now, uh, the expression of one heart and mind also clearly recalls similar expressions in the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind that that literally one heart and one mind really is one heart and one soul. Um, now, the translation mind is, is clearly fine, um, but if we don't see that, we might miss how this expression appears in the Old Testament. Probably the most memorable place would be the Shema, uh, which is uh, the most famous prayer from the Old Testament. It appears in Exodus, uh, sorry, in Deuteronomy is what I meant to say. And it, it is a prayer that is prayed to this day by, by Jewish people. And it goes here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your mind, which is literally heart, your whole being, literally soul, and your strength. So to do something with all of your heart and with all of your soul uh, essentially means with all of you, with everything you have. Well, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we read about this quote unquote, what I keep calling ideal community. Uh, they share everything in common. Now the verb tenses in the Greek suggest that it's all like they sold everything at one time and they were just holding the money. Uh, since it's the imperfect verb, it, it conveys the idea that they were selling property as there was need. Now, um, just like the idea of one heart and mind was very common in the context of friendship in the ancient world, the idea of sharing property or everything actually in common was also used particularly in the context of friendship. Um, so, so again, this really conveys the idea that these believers were truly friends with one another. Uh, biblically speaking, of course, um, the, this ideal co community conveys right the promises of the Old Testament uh, we could think particularly of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 through 5. It says, however, there should be, sorry, there should not be any poor among you, for the Lord will surely bless you in the land that he is giving you as an inheritance if you carefully obey him by keeping all these commandments that I am giving you today. Right? If you obey God, what is the ultimate hope that there will be no poor among you? Now, we're told by Jesus elsewhere, I didn't put this in the blog, but that the poor will always be among us. So we should not expect a complete fulfillment of this uh, in this life. But certainly we can expect an improvement. Now, uh, that the goods were deposited at the apostles' feet, it means um, two things, that the apostles were in charge of the money. That's rather obvious. And it is also a symbol of submission. The, the community of believers are recognizing the apostles as the leaders. Um, the way that the apostles are described and particularly how they ha handle the funds, it is a stark contrast with the religious leaders of the time uh, because the apostles do not enrich themselves and in fact they distribute the funds as there is need. None of those things could be said of the religious leaders like the Sadducees that we discussed last time. Now, we are told the apostles uh, gave testimony with power. That idea of power, it you know, in most other places in Acts implies uh, miracles and bold speech. So that's probably what it means here. And we are told that grace fell upon them all. That is a rather tricky expression. What does grace really mean? When it when it falls on someone, when it's upon someone, you could look at other places in which the same word is used. For example, it is used of Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, 
we're told, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor, that word favor literally is the same word, grace, of God was upon him. Um, so it can have that connotation of favor. Um, Paul also uses the exact same word, like when he says, and we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift is prophecy, that individual must use it in proportion to his faith. Right? We have gifts according to the grace given to us. So grace um, can take this meaning of favor, empowerment, or both. And how you understand it in that passage, I will leave leave that up to you guys. I really do find that to be um, d difficult, to be honest. Um, then we get to the story, I'm going to put that in air quotes of Barnabas, because it's just like two sentences. So it's, it's not much of a story, but we need to stop here and think about it for a minute because he will be the good example. And then immediately after him, we get to the bad example. So um, perhaps uh, Barnabas, uh, Barnabas was singled out because his monetary contribution to the church was the largest. Some scholars, some commentators think that, that maybe he gave the most money. Um, now, if you, you know, if, if you've been following along with the, the book of Acts, that seems really unlikely. Like it, it doesn't seem like Luke would exalt someone because of their wealth, because of money. Um, instead, it, it seems that the, the, this reference is really an introduction an introduction to Barnabas because he will play a larger role in the book of Acts later. So it, it makes sense to introduce him now, particularly when he has done a, a very good deed. It, it, you know, kind of sets the precedent what we can expect of this character. Now we are told that he was given a nickname. This makes sense. The name Joseph in the ancient world, in particular the ancient Jewish world is what I mean, was incredibly common. So, uh, you know, if you, if you have a lot of people sharing the same name, it's only natural that you will give them uh, a nickname or surname or whatever. Uh, mind you, the same was true of the name Simon. So in the Bible, when you read about Simon, generally they're given another name, right? Think of Peter, the guy we're reading about, Simon Peter. Now, um, this also, you know, could have a connection to times in the Old Testament when someone was renamed, uh, giving somebody a name, it uh, denoted authority over them. So perhaps this shows that Barnabas was uh, submissive to the apostles, was following their lead. Um, but the nickname actually has nothing to do with being submissive. It really has to do with being an encourager. And when you read the rest of the book of Acts, as we will hopefully, um, you see that the name was well-placed. He really does play that role. Uh, Barnabas was from Cyprus. Many Jews lived in Cyprus at the time. It was a very wealthy area. It was rich in minerals and agriculture. So presumably this field that Barnabas sold was very expensive. It brought in quite a bit of money. Now, what we need to really notice here as we move to the bad example is that Barnabas did everything right. That That's kind of the point. He, he sold the field. He took the money. He gave it to the apostles for them to administer so he showed generosity, charity, love, unity, and submission to the leadership. Okay. Um, now, again, this uh, this will stand in stark contrast with, with what we're about to read. As a sort of side note, I think that the chapter marker here was, was ill-placed. Clearly, this story about Barnabas should not be separated from the story of Ananias. Um, and remember that chapter markers were added later. They're, they're not really part of scripture. So I'm not criticizing scripture by saying, hey, the guy who broke it into chapters didn't get it quite right with this story. Um, but of course, you guys can agree or disagree. Well, so immediately we move to the bad example and we, re we read now a man named Ananias. Now, what did he do? But it's really one sentence. It says, now a, now a man named Ananias together with Sapphira his wife sold a piece of property. He kept back for himself part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. He brought only part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. So sold some land. He kept a cut. He brought the rest to the apostles. And now from the rest of this story, we learn a key detail. Now this is implied, but very clearly so. So, I mean, no one would deny this. That he pretended, Ananias pretended 
like he gave all the proceeds to the apostles. And here's where, like I said, the, the study today may be a little bit more topical uh, because I'm going to kind of park here and really ask the question, what is so wrong about this? Why did he drop dead? Um, and, and at first the answer seems obvious, but I hope that maybe if we think about it in a little bit of depth, uh, we can see that it, it really there's a lot to it. So, you know, we might ask, these, this is just to kind of set up the, the question, the conflict. He gave a bunch of money to the church. Doesn't the good that he did outweigh the bad? That is the lie that he told. Uh, was he required to give the whole amount? Maybe he kept back too much money. Okay. Are these the issue or is there something else here? Let's start by talking about kind of the, the big problem with what he did. And, and so there's three concepts that I, I want to discuss, the idea of the sanctity of the community, uh, seeking of honor for oneself, and then hypocrisy. Now, I, I kept describing this community as the ideal community, quote-unquote, and in and perhaps one could say, well, what, what Luke really is focusing on here is that one should give sacrificially, and Ananias failed to do that. He did not give sacrificially. But that doesn't seem to be the point because Peter effectively tells Ananias later, you didn't have to give it all. So what really is the problem? Well, what was Ananias and his wife? I'm just going to speak of him, but you can, you can add his wife to the mix. Um, what was he trying to do? Well, he was trying to exalt himself, right? He wanted to be honored in God's community. That's why he did what he did. And really, you don't have to read very far into the Bible to find all sorts of verses that talk about this. By the way, I hope you guys can't hear my dog chewing on a bone very loudly. If you can, let me know. Okay, good. I hear. Okay, I see faces saying no. Um, so um, let me read some of these verses. Uh, this is God talking to Pharaoh in the Old Testament. You're still exalting yourself against my people by not releasing them. Or let me read from John. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes from the only God, right? If you are seeking praise from people, you will not seek the praise that really matters, that which comes from God. Let me read from Luke. As all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the experts in the law. They like walking around in long robes and they love elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' property and as a show make long prayers. They will receive a more severe punishment, right? So the experts in the law, they did all of the public things that they might receive honor, but then they would devour widows' property, right? They would be so incredibly unkind to the poor and the most uh, in need. Now, um, you, you might say, well, but was Ananias really seeking praise? He didn't have to give. But we have to keep in mind that even when a practice within a group is voluntary, if it's common enough or highly regarded enough, it can become normative in something you want to do to be highly regarded. Um Besides, in the ancient world, benefactors expected public honor. Okay, so so absolutely this makes sense that Ananias was doing this to receive public honor. Now, there's even a deeper problem, which is that honoring one, oneself by pretending to engage in sacrificial behavior is the epitome of hypocrisy, right? So if you participate in our, in our study of John, you know that this is the case. Jesus talks about hypocrisy all the time. And I want to read some passages. Um, actually, I didn't pull them from John, but just to remind you how big of a deal this is, okay? So from Mark, for example, he said to them, that being Jesus, he said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Because whenever you do charitable giving, do not blow a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on streets, so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when you do your giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your gift may be in secret. 
and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And of course, I could not discuss hypocrisy without the quote-unquote seven woes. Uh, this is normally the subheading in your Bible whenever you get to uh, Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus keeps saying to the experts in the law and the Pharisees, he goes, but woe to you, experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he explains, I'll read some of them. It's a rather long passage, but he'll say, you keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you neither enter nor permit those trying to trying to go in, right? That That's how bad hypocrisy can be. You do not enter the kingdom of heaven and you're holding other people out. No. Woe to you, experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You cross land and sea to make one convert. And when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Uh, I'll skip some of the longer passages and read. Woe to you, experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. Okay. And again, you can you can read the, the whole passage, but clearly hypocrisy is very bad. Okay. It actually is a, a really big deal. Now, that question might come to mind. You might say, well, okay, hypocrisy is bad, and the Pharisees were hypocrites, but we still don't read Jesus, you know, of Jesus just like slashing through them with a with a sword or something, just killing them all for being hypocrites, right? We also don't read of the apostles just persecuting people, you know, stabbing every hypocrite they find or doing some miracle that you know, forces people to straighten their ways. So why Ananias and Sapphira? Why do they drop that? And the answer, it seems quite clear. God judges, or at least at the time, God judged imposters within the community much more, severe, much more severely than false prophets or leaders outside of it, right? The, the judgment is severe because they are trying to infiltrate the community of believers. We find a similar principle in Corinthians, in, in sorry, the, the, the first letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. So I'm going to, to read that. It's just one paragraph, but I think it's important. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. In no way did I mean the immoral people of this world. When he uses that expression, he means people not in the church, right? So, in no way did I mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since you would then have to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls himself a Christian who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person for... What do I have to do with judging those outside? Are you not to judge those inside? But God will judge those outside. Remove the evil person from among you. Right. So we do see this principle that if somebody calls themselves a Christian, they are to be held to a Christian standard by the community of believers, by the church. Let me put it this way. God sacrificed his one and only beloved son that there might be a path for salvation. So it only makes sense that God would protect particularly the early church from the sense of hypocrisy and self-aggrandizing, which would have prevented that message from spreading, right? That message that came at such a high cost. This is going to be kind of a quick detour, and I'm going to come back to, to the main point I want to make today. But notice that Ananias' behavior um, really recalls the behavior of Judas. They're both described as being affected by or filled by Satan. Let me read the, the passage from Luke regarding Judas. The chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find some way to execute Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, the one called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers of, of the temple guard how he might betray Jesus. And then he goes on. Now, regarding Ananias, we learned this from Peter's question when he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Now, I think there's at least two important observations that we ought to make from here. One is that despite our 
modern sensibilities that are really going to oppose this thought. The Bible does seem to speak of personal evil beings, right? By personal, what I mean is that they have agency, right? Like, like people do, as opposed to just a force. Um, Satan is at work opposing God. Um, in fact, from Peter's question, the impression you get that this whole scene about Ananias is not really about Ananias and Peter. It is about Satan and the Holy Spirit, right? We see this same concept also expressed by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Now, the reason I make this observation, which might seem so obvious to some, um, is that more progressive Christians, they, you know, and of course people who, who are not believers, they really deny the idea of personal forces of evil. They at most grant the existence of evil as a concept, but certainly no embodiment of it in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I just find that to be a very difficult reading of the Bible. That, that First of all, just the text plainly does not seem to read that way. Um, but it's also not what the writer would have tried to convey or the original audience would have understood. So it's a very difficult um, interpretation to hold, uh, which is my polite way of saying I think that's just flat wrong. But there you go. Um, now, notice how also this kind of frames the sin of Ananias. Like, he is working for the enemy. He is an agent of Satan that is infiltrating the community of God. He's trying to join the spirit of Satan to the Holy Spirit. This is quite a big deal. Um, so, you know, perhaps it that, that helps us make sense of the fact that um, he dropped it. Um, let's talk about Sapphira rather quickly. Um, really, the main thing I want to say about her is that she actually lends a lot of credibility to the story if you're analyzing this from a historical standpoint. Her name, Sapphira, in its various spellings, appeared almost exclusively in this time period referring to wealthy uh, families in Jerusalem or women in, in wealthy families in Jerusalem. So it, it's just very unlikely that Luke could have made up a name that was so spot on. It just, it, it, it seems historically reliable. Um, now, at the time, of course, generally speaking, the selling of land would have involved only men, but we do have actually documents from the time that involved women. So it's not unheard of that a woman would have been involved. That could be because maybe this was her inheritance from her dad or something along those lines. Um, now, legalities aside, you know, was Sapphira really guilty? Because in a patriarchal patriarchal society, she could not have stopped her husband from, or probably could not have stopped her husband from selling the field and keeping back some of the money. But she could have been honest. And because she failed to do that, uh, she was held responsible. Now, I want to get to kind of the main thing I would like to discuss today. Um, and this is, it, it's going to relate to the idea of Christian freedom and how conscience relates to sin. And again, I know that this is not typically what I do normally, I stay very, very close to the text, but I think this is a good opportunity to maybe talk a little bit more about Christian morality. So um, I will admit um, that part of the reason I'm, I'm going on this tangent is because this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I know that must sound at least a little bit morbid. And no, it's not because I want every sinner in the church to drop dead. Um, I would surely be included among them. But because the response by Peter is so telling, uh, it is so enlightening about Christian morality. There really is a lot there. So let me read his response once more. He says, um, before it was sold, meaning the field, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was the money not at your disposal? Right? Think about that. The field was his. He could sell it or not sell it. The money was his. Even after he sold it, he could have kept it. This story is not about money. 
this story is not about tithing, right? This story is really about his hypocrisy, uh, his self-aggrandizing. But what, what, what I want to kind of highlight is that Ananias actually had the freedom to do what he wanted to do with that field and with that money. That is actually quite telling. And at the time, by the way, the, perhaps the reason that this really hits me is because one of the, the other communities at the time, uh, the Qumran community, to join it, you had to give up all of your property. Okay, it was mandatory. So did Christians behave the same way? Um, no, not really. Christians, throughout the New Testament, we see that there is this, what I'm going to call Christian freedom, right? The freedom uh, to do what one believes to be right in a number of situations within a certain range. Normally, the go-to passage, which in my opinion is not the best passage to express this idea, is, uh, is Galatians 5. Let me read that and then I will explain why that's not really what I'm after. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. And I testify again to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be declared righteous by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, but through the Spirit, by faith, we wait expectantly for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor, nor sorry, uncircumcision carries any weight. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Now, if that passage makes no sense to you, it's because we haven't done a, a study of Galatians. But the situation there was that um, some within the church were saying, hey, if you want to be saved, you have to obey the Old Testament. And the way you entered the Old Testament covenant was by by being circumcised. So uh, that's why that, that word keeps coming up. It's essentially, hey, follow the, the old law. That's what you need to do to be saved. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that no, we're not bound by the Old Testament law. And certainly that is not the way that we are saved. So sure, we are free from the law in that regard. But that's not really what I'm talking about when I speak of Christian freedom. By the way, this is not a critique of that passage. It is only a, a critique of how it is used sometimes. Um, so to talk about Christian freedom, let's focus on, on any one issue, right? If we wanted the answer to any one issue, what should I do in this particular situation? Well, since we're reading Acts 5, let's pick giving to the church. Let's say that I go to the New Testament and I'm like, how much money must I give to the church? I want an answer. Yes, yeah, like a specific answer. Well, maybe we would read Romans 12 when it says, do not lag in zeal, be enthusiastic in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, persist in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, pursue hospitality. Okay, contribute to the needs of the saints. Got it. But how much? Like, really, I mean, I want to give us the money that I should give to the church. I kind of need an amount, right? Or we could take a short detour to hospitality. Okay, I've got to be hospitable, but when? To whom? How often? <laughs> in tax, in the tax world, you guys know I'm, I'm, I'm a tax accountant. There's normally safe harbors, meaning... The IRS will say, hey, if you do this much, you comply with the rule. And the IRS will do that in case in cases when the rule is kind of fussy. So they give you this, this safe harbor. Well, I didn't read about it in that verse, but I know I know what to do. In the letter to Timothy, Paul addresses giving to the church and to the poor quite extensively. So surely that's when I'm going to find all of my specific answers. Let me read that. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take a single thing out either. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. Those who long to be rich, however, stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people in reaching for it have strayed from the face and stabbed themselves with many pains. But you as a person dedicated to God, keep away from all that. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, endurance, and gentleness. Compete well for the faith and lay hold of that eternal life you were called for and made your good confession for in the presence of many witnesses. 
I charge you before God who gives life to all things in Christ Jesus, who made his good confession before Pontius Pilate to obey this command without fault or failure until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is appearing the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords will reveal at the right time. He alone possesses immortality and lives in unapproachable light, whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty or to sell their hope on riches, which are uncertain, but in God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. In this way, they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future and so lay hold of what is truly life. Again, command those who are rich in this world, goods not to be haughty or to set their hope on riches. Tell them to do good deeds. How much? How much? Now, of course, I don't really wonder how much I have to give to the church, but I'm trying to highlight that these commands in the New Testament are actually quite broad, right? They're quite general. The uncomfortable answers that were not given all of the details. Um, then what is a Christian to do? And the words of Peter come to mind in this story about Ananias. Before it was sold, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was the money not at your disposal? The uncomfortable truth is that Christians have freedom as to how they pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, endurance, and gentleness. Um, now, this is not to say that what's right and what's wrong is somehow relative. It means that how you apply it in, in different situations will change, in that Christians, a people, have some leeway as to how they do it. Now, this will lead to the other big concept that, that I, I want to discuss today. It is what I'm going to call sins of conscience. This is not normally the phrase that would be used in literature, but I, I find it to be, um, you know, kind of more, um, you know, easier to explain. Anyways, Think about where was the sin of Ananias? Was it his actions? Well, I mean, he gave a bunch of money to the church, so probably not there. Um, now you could say, well, it was in the lie. He lied, which is clearly implied in the text. Well, but is it just the lie that got him killed? Because let's say he had lied for other reasons, just as a thought experiment. Imagine that he kept some of the money back because he wanted to help some poor individual who was embarrassed to receive money from the church. So again, it's just a thought experiment. Imagine Ananias had kept back some of the money in secret and lied about it so he could help this brother in secret without bringing him shame. Now, that lie may still be wrong, but I don't think that Ananias would have dropped dead, right? Um, I, I think that's, uh, that's a fair guess. So where was the, the, the real, the, the more meaningful sin of Ananias? And it was in his heart, right? It was not in the what he did, but in the why he did it. And this is such a big part of Christian morality, the idea that it, it is what is in your heart, what you mean to do, what you would like to do, um, that is so relevant to whether what you have done is right or wrong. Um, for Just for the, the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole passage that I was thinking about reading, but this is really addressed at length in Romans chapter 14. Again, this was written by Paul. Um, Paul is asked, hey, can we eat food that is sacrificed to the gods? And without going into too much detail, we should just know that in the in the meat markets at the time, much of the meat was sacrificed to pagan gods. So some Christians felt like to eat that was wrong. It was it was like an act of idolatry. And some Christians said those pagan gods are fake, anyways. Like I, you you're free to eat that uh, that food. So let me read to you some of the statements that come through in this discussion. And again, I'm, I'm going to jump around in that chapter just for the sake of time here. But the one who observes the day... Oh, uh, no, actually, let me just read uh, one or two other steps. Um, but you who eat vegetables only, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment suit of God. I'm also going to read this statement. I know 
and I'm convinced that in the Lord Jesus, that there's nothing unclean in itself. He's talking about food. Still, it is unclean to the one who considers it unclean. And let me read this last statement. Blessed is the one who does not judge himself for what he approves, but the man who doubts is condemned if he eats. Right? Okay, Paul's statements are amazing. He recognizes there's nothing that you can eat that in itself is sinful, right? There's no unclean food. But if you believe that something is unclean and you eat it anyways, then you have committed grave sin. Why? Because in your heart, you disobeyed God, right? In your heart, you thought something was wrong and you did it anyways. Now, does this mean that morality then is subjective? It's all about what we think is right or wrong. And no, that it that is obviously not the case. And, and I think sometimes people just carry this idea too far. Love, generosity, kindness are objectively good to pick a, a small sample. Cruelty, avarice, and covetousness are objectively wrong. Now, what is essentially subjective is to determine whether somebody is being generous or greedy, for example, we need to look, generally speaking, we need to look at their heart, right? And the problem is we as people, we can't do that, but God can. And we get statement after statement in the Bible about God knowing a man's heart, right? And that nothing is hidden from God. You know, I will leave you with this, this final kind of statement. When Jesus talks about the final judgment in the Gospel of Luke, this is in chapter 12, Notice what will happen in the end. And I read here. Meanwhile, when many thousands of the crowd had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. And nothing is secret that will not be made known. So then whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the, from the housetops. The day of judgment will be a scary day because that evil that was secret that was in our hearts will be revealed all things will be revealed and it will put many of us to shame um so with that i'm going to turn it over to you matt and see uh, if you have any comments about today yeah of course these are big uh philosophical themes that have, of course are going to gather my interest before i discuss those as usual if any of you would like to participate in the discussion uh, just write the word question in the chat. I will bring you in in the order in which we receive those. Don't need to write your question. Just the word question will suffice. Um, yeah, your, your, your end discussion there about objective morality and about our intentions and motives when we commit certain acts that may be good or bad. Those are all very interesting topics to me. And I'm glad you made that closing commentary about whether this uh, sort of intent in your heart makes morality subjective or not because that's exactly what i was wondering as you were saying this that is to say people who commit crimes against each other from stealing a candy bar to killing a guy very often think that they have their reasons that well i did this because my family's hungry so i stole that loaf of bread i killed that guy because he was about to do something bad and i had to stop him whether or not that's true so that's that's what had me worried is is that like kind of a blank check to get out of crime free now it sounds like you're saying no but the other thought i wanted to add was earlier in the discussion you were talking about at least if i understand it when you're talking about um sort of honesty in 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 committing this act or it's better to be the problem with ananias that's his name right Ananias. Yeah. Ananias was not honest about his intentions when he committed what was a bad act. So it's better to be honest when you're being bad than to be dishonest or misrepresent when you're being bad. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Um, I mean, that may be true that that's not maybe the point that was trying to make. What, what I'm okay. saying is his, since there was nothing uh, innately evil about what he did, the only thing that turned that action into something wrong was the intention in his heart. So essentially, if he had come to the apostles and said, hey, I sold this field and I'm only giving you 80% because I want to support the church, but I want to keep the other 20% back, both the action and the motivation would have been correct. So that would have been perfectly fine. 
The problem is he pretended to give more than he was giving because he wanted everyone to praise him. Okay. Maybe I just misunderstood because I was trying to analyze in my mind. Is there, is there a conflict here between sort of being honest about committing a bad act and then supposedly having good motive while committing a bad act? But maybe I'm misunderstanding the way this is being framed. Yeah, perhaps it. Perhaps I didn't explain myself well, but th- no, I'm not saying that if you're honest about doing something bad, that somehow makes it okay. Uh, I suppose it makes it more okay. Makes I it su- less bad. I su- yeah. yeah, like not I justified, suppose- but less bad. Yeah. yeah, I suppose it could make it less bad, but it would still be bad. But in this case, what I'm saying is what Ananias did did not have to be bad if he had had the right motives in his heart. What did, you know, except for possibly the lie, I suppose. But if, if he had come clean... His gift would have been a wonderful thing. It's mm-hmm. not the problem was not that he didn't give all the proceeds. The problem is that he lied for this very evil reason, right? He was a hypocrite to 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 seek honor for oneself. I see Chris in the chat saying it was kind of a virtue signaling. And that's what I thought at the start of the discussion was this is biblical virtue signaling. It was about mm-hmm. the public advertisement as opposed to just being a good person or doing a good deed for its own sake. Which it is, it is, I mean, that's the whole point is these concepts are very, very old. For as much as we think behavior is ridiculous in the modern time, and it is, these are very, very uh, ancient concepts of, of human behavior, you know? Um, yeah. It's exactly the, what it was, by the way. I love yeah, that. yeah. The, the only other thing I wanted to clarify, and I think I know the answer to this question, but this is more just a point of fact rather than philosophy. Was it Paul who was speaking about there was the, um, the the piece there about circumcision and about whether that is relevant or not. When he's talking about the old law versus the new law, I am I to interpret that to mean the the old law is just obsolete and or irrelevant, or am I supposed to mean the am I to interpret that to mean the old law is actually bad? No, I, really, I would say neither. This is a this is kind of a complicated discussion, but it. Christians today, just about any Christian today, would say that the principles of the Old Testament law uh, certainly apply because they are in line with with God's character and we're trying to be like God in the sense of we're trying to be godly. So we don't read the Old Testament law and completely disregard it, but it is not a strict following of that law that earns us salvation. It is it is the goodness of Christ and his sacrifice okay. that does so. Um and certainly we know we don't have to follow the ceremonial components of that Old Testament law. Um, and and circumcision would have been part of that. So it's like, no, we don't. Now, if somebody, don't get me wrong, it, if somebody is circumcised today, that is not wrong. That is not, that is not a moral wrong. It would be wrong if somebody says, well, Christ won't do it for me. Christ won't save me. So I'm going to try to seek salvation through this other law. And that's why I'm being circumcised. Again, it's the matter of the heart. It's not the act in itself. Yeah. Okay. So it's not, it's not necessarily a condemnation of the, of the old law. It is just saying the old law is not sufficient anymore. There is something, some other qualification or criteria that has replaced it. Correct. That's exactly. Okay. Uh, VV is up first. Go for it. If you're ready. Um, I'll try. So, uh, I think, um, atheists bring this up, um, uh, with, uh, Christian apologists where they say that, um, are we inherently immoral or, um, do, uh, are atheists uh, inherently immoral? And I've heard Frank Turek, um, uh, one Christian apologist kind of comment on this saying that the, the Holy Spirit or the, uh, moral law is written on our hearts. And uh, we do have the capability of discerning uh, from uh, good versus evil. And I, I think that when uh, Jordan Peterson has even commented on this, where you feel this sort of dilemma or feel it in your solar plexus or deep down inside, you you feel this um, discomfort. And when you come to the point where you're either lying to yourself um, or making excuses, and you know deep down inside what you're doing is uh, wrong. I think that's the uh, the objective moral law trying to speak to you, your own conscience. And uh, I, I think that's our uh, God's image that's written 
uh, in our very soul. We're made in his image. We are his children. And so that sort of morality is trying to make its way to the surface. It's the, it's what I understand as the Holy Spirit trying to talk to us. But because of the uh, the manifestation of sin or the presence of sin, um, it, it we we battle with this um, with these unseen forces uh, with Satan with uh, with each other. Uh, I think that's where the dilemmas uh, come into play. I, I I wonder what you think about this, and I won't go on a whole sermon or whatever. But I, um, I I've said to people, I've said even to my own wife that. If you're pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ just to save your own butt and get into heaven, you're doomed to hell because you don't nece- you don't truly care about a relationship with God. You care about eternal life, and that's inherently a selfish pursuit. Hmm. You don't. Re- I think eternal life is a byproduct of a relationship with Christ because the reward is eternity with Jesus Christ. Um, what are your What is your thoughts on that? Um, well, I I agree that I think that people have essentially God's law in their hearts. Generally speaking, people know that which is right and that which is wrong. Uh, so I do agree with that. Of course, uh, because we are fallen people, sometimes we do get that wrong. Um, but but generally speaking, absolutely. Um, regarding your last comment, um, I am reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis' a book in which he writes about this. And, and essentially, C.S. Lewis kind of argues the the opposite in the sense that, Hey, there's nothing wrong with, with, um, following God to obey destruction. Like there's nothing wrong with desiring life, but to your credit, because I really, at the end of the day, really agree with your comment. The question is, what does that life look like? Right? Like sometimes when like edgy atheists say, you know, whatever, like, uh, you know, you think that people like me go to hell and it's like, well, do you want to go to heaven? Because like, do, do you know what heaven is like? God is going to be there. The guy that you hate and that you disobey at every turn. So like, I mean, I guess you're welcome there, but I don't think you want to go there. Um, you know, and of course, I'm not saying that they're, I mean, God will make those judgments. I, I can't override God. But the point is, they wouldn't want heaven to begin with. Um, so yeah, I, I effectively agree with your comments. Yeah. Thanks for the thoughts, Vivi. And um, th- those questions are exactly why I'm here. I, I certainly agree that there is some sort of natural law that's encoded into all of us. And I know this would somewhat contradict what I just said about some people justifying their crimes or bad actions. But I think even the, to a large extent, those people are lying to themselves. Like you can mm-hmm. say, oh, I did this and it's fine because X, Y, and Z. Do you really believe it in your core? And I think every time we commit a bad act, even if we can rationalize it or explain it to somebody else, you have that inescapable feeling deep inside that tells you that was wrong. You shouldn't do that. And I know the Competing theory is like, well, there's just some evolutionary advantage. That's the reason that we have that biologically. I don't even know that those are mutually exclusive necessarily, but I do know there's all sorts of immoral behavior that would be advantageous to my personal survival that I still feel bad about doing. Like if I'm an expert thief or murderer and I go ravage my neighbor's property and feed my family with it. Uh, I, I would, that might be advantageous to my survival, but I would still feel terrible about that. Why? What created that sort of hardwired morality in the conscience of the human soul or mind or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it or characterize it? Those are, uh, those are the questions that, that explain why I'm here. So I always appreciate those thoughts. Thank you, VV. Uh, Chris, you're good to go if you're ready. Yeah. Thanks again for the lesson and the opportunity to ask a question and uh, just Real quick, Matt, I think you'll enjoy Acts, especially when we get into Acts like chapter 17, when Paul is talking to the Greeks and so forth about uh, about some of those things you were just describing. Hmm. Um, so, Robert, uh, so the quick I was going to do a little uh, more uh, plumbing on this on this uh, idea of. Uh, the, the basically the idea that you could, you know, that we have some choices and, things. and I a hundred percent agree. Uh, one of the things that came to mind was, uh, you know, as far as giving, there's, there's some instructions in second Corinthians nine about giving sparingly and reaping sparingly. And, and of course, giving abundantly and reaping abundantly and things like that. And, you know, even in the old Testament, there were free will offerings in addition to all the mandatory offerings. And also at other 
one that came just kind of popped into my head was uh, in First Corinthians seven, when Paul's giving instructions to people because those people uh, in that letter it really sounds like they're getting ready to come under some kind of intense persecution, and and Paul is getting into some issues around marriage, and one of the things he tells them he says basically you're you're better off just just putting all of that on the back burner for now. And but he but anyway in one place and I think it's in. First Corinthians seven thirty eight. He talks about the person who goes ahead and gets married. It's okay, but the person who can put this on the back burner does better. So there's all. So in addition to there is right and wrong, and then the, but within the realm of right, there's doing something and doing better. And I think there's always room to do better. And um, the the other as far as this pertains to. Um, our buddies here, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, you know, they, they could have, I think it's pretty clear. They, they could have sold the field, kept part of the money, given part of the money and just being quiet about it, or even been honest about it. Like in the, you know, Jesus told people that like, if, if they, they did basically did something to get the attention of doing it, that was their reward. That was it. You had your reward on, on earth, you, you know, uh, but what what he tells us to do is to, you know, not let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. And and so basically we give in secret and we don't want people to know. We don't want the credit for those things because he he's crediting us. Right. And we'd rather have that. And that's one of the things I always tell people who. Um, anyway, they, they, they would have been fine stopping there. Right. But and also just one last thing about this, the. One of the things people when people bring up this objection, oh, Christians don't do enough to help the poor. I'm like, well, you don't know what they're doing, because if they're doing it right, they're not you're not going to know about it. You know, so anyway, just curious if you have any feedback on those thoughts. Um, no, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I can make brief comments here and there. Like, I mean, if somebody wants to criticize Christians, I mean, statistically, they are the most charitable. So um you know, whatever. But like you said, there's all this charity that goes unsaid. So uh, absolutely, that is true as well. Um, but no, I, I agree with those comments very much. Thanks, Chris. And I, I had a, a question about that as well. And I know Donald wants to chime in. So Robert, do you have maybe just a couple extra minutes past time? Okay. Absolutely. Um, I, I think you've spoken to this theme in prior studies. Uh, obviously, as part of tonight's study, when you when you give to charity or when you do some sort of deed for another person, um, are, are you you're obviously not supposed to be self promotional about it? But does that mean that that you're supposed to be entirely anonymous or secret about it, or are there ways to be public about it that are not necessarily a problem? I think it's the latter. So I actually read the, the passage today from Jesus, right? When he says, essentially, if you give with one hand, don't let the other hand know what you're doing. Uh, the idea being like, be that level of of modest about it. Um, but in that passage, what Jesus is, is fighting against is hypocrisy, right? There's the people who give, who virtue signal. We're going to use that term because it's literally what is going on. He's saying, don't, don't give to virtue signal. Uh, give because... You really want to help the person that you're giving to. And so I think that we shouldn't apply that in an overly wooden way. And we should see that sometimes to give publicly can be more beneficial and we do we can do so with uh, essentially a righteous heart. Uh, and the example I gave at the time was, let's say that I thought that if I give through a GoFundMe campaign, I'm, I might inspire others to give more because maybe I'm relatively famous, right? So like maybe Matt, you would be in this position. You could say, Hey, I'm going to donate a thousand dollars to, you know, this soldier's family because of some tragedy that has happened. If you can give, please give as well. And in that regard, you're not violating the words of Jesus because you're not giving publicly to seek honor for yourself or out of hypocrisy, you're giving publicly because you're actually accomplishing more good. So I would say, generally speaking, we don't want to give publicly because it's so tempting to, to seek honor out of that. But we, we should not apply that as an always. 
and and really, if I understand correctly, the distinction there is not even like a, a set of rules to say like you should say it this way or do it this way. The distinction is the intent in your heart, the intent that really only you know and God knows. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's really up to each individual to evaluate that motive within himself for himself. It's not necessarily something that we could. Obviously, there might be blatant examples like virtue signaling stuff. Where you, but, you know, there's a lot of gray area there of like, well, is that guy trying to be self-promotional or is he just trying to help the charity? I, I guess the correct answer is that is a question to be assessed between that guy and God himself. Uh, absolutely. Okay. And one day all things will be revealed. And if, I know that there's another question, but if just one more minute, I, th- there's two quick comments I want to make. One is when sometimes uh, people who, who are not believers who probably have not read the Bible, you know, they speak of the Bible as being this book of rules. I think, what are you talking about? Like the rules in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, they're so gray, right? Mm. Which is not to say they're not there. I am not saying that there's not an objective good, but how we apply that, it requires actually a lot of wisdom, um, you know, in in a lot of sincere heart, essentially, intention. Um, So it's just not what people imagine Christianity to be. But I'll I'll leave it at that if we want to take that last question. Sure. Uh, Donald, I know you've been patient, so thanks for waiting and go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Yeah, thank you. Um, this reminds me about something I've heard Dennis Prager observe, and I'm going to do a terrible paraphrase, but um, he said something along the lines that that's the thing about Christians that either he doesn't get or it, it just kind of he sort of looks at it kind of cockeyed that to him, his observation was it seems like Christians get so wrapped up in motive, like, okay, what is my motive? Is my motive pure? Or what about that guy? What's his motive? And his counter to that was, I don't care what somebody's motive is when they do something good for me, just that they did something good for me. Um, and maybe that comes from the whole you know, tradition of mitzvah, I suppose. But anyway, I, I think you've addressed this from a lot of different angles. But maybe it struck me because I'm one of those people who just get so wrapped up in <laughs> analyzing and triple analyzing and stuff and you know kind of frozen but um i think um my takeaway is just do the good thing don't blow any trumpets (laughs) and take care of what needs to be taken care of that's all thanks i sorry go ahead I am so glad that Donald made this comment. So, so glad. I thought about it all week. I didn't bring it up just because of the the sake of time. But this is one of the main differences um, between Judaism and Christianity. I mean, particularly when it comes to morality, this is the main difference. So uh, normally, because, right, people have different interpretations in there. But generally speaking, Judaism follows more of a deontological moral system where they're just going to focus on the action. But Christians are not like that. We we focus on the heart, right? We have we have Jesus speaking, for example, of of if you lo- if you lust after a woman, that is the same as sleeping with that woman. I'm paraphrasing, but that is what Jesus says, right? What 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 does Jesus mean by that? Let's say that you would sleep with someone if if you were able, if that person would say yes. Um, and so the only reason you're not sleeping with them is because they haven't said yes. Then you're not any better than the person who actually gets to sleep with that person. Um, the only difference is your physical inability to do so, but your heart is just as wretched, right? As Christians, we, our whole focus is on becoming holy in becoming better people, not just doing better things. And the difference is night and day. It is night and day. Like we ought to be godly, not just act godly. Completely different things. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that because that, uh, that helps clarify some of my earlier question and helps, helps me think about this stuff. It's like, if the only obviously I'm going to think about this in like the political or the legal context rather than biblical, but it's like if the if the only thing that stops you from killing your neighbor, like I said before, is just the fact that if you do, the police will come and take you away to prison. 
I mean, you haven't killed him, but are you actually a good guy? If that's the only thing and you don't have anything within you that would stop you from doing that, are you actually a good guy? That's those are the themes that you're speaking to. And that that helps clarify some of that. The importance of motive to me, because my initial reaction was, well, yeah, I mean, but if you steal, I don't like, did you do it? Because you were thinking nice things or bad things. You still stole everything you just said helps clarify that to me that, that there's a there's an importance in the moral restraint within the person himself rather than just like all these external factors that are the only obstacles to you committing immoral acts or crimes or anything else so um okay wait i've got then i've got a follow-up to what robert said hmm. um okay what if the best i can do is to act godly and let's dial it back from murder <laughs> okay <laughs> just turn the temperature down a little bit but what if what if the best i can do is to act godly uh, okay, so that that is a very interesting question. Um, and Matt, do you have one more minute? Yeah, for me of course. To yeah, I got all the time uh, that uh, that you have. So, I think that that is a good place to begin. Um, I think that what what we think affects what we do, but also what we do affects what we think. Right? Sometimes I may not feel like like something like maybe I don't feel like giving money to the church, let's say, but I do it. I do it out of obedience and discipline. But over time that what I do can actually start to affect my heart and, and, and really help me to become a more generous person. Right. So maybe let's, let's use a different context. Let's say that somebody is addicted to pornography, uh, which is a very common thing today. Right. Maybe the best they can do at first is put blockers on all their devices that don't allow them to access that. So essentially they force the right behavior because they still can't, quote unquote, feel the right behavior. Their heart is not there. Well, that is a perfectly fine place to begin, but that's just not the end goal. The end goal is to be the kind of person who would not watch pornography, who would not want to, right? And again, last thing, and I'll I'll shut up on this, but... That, that is the beauty of the Christian life is we actually do what we want to, right? The whole point is that these commands that God gives me, they're not a burden on me because I want to be like God. I want to serve him. So I delight in that. And that is not just words. That is the Christian life. It is to do exactly what I want to do. It just happens that what I want to do is to follow God. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll visit this in a lot of ways throughout the weeks. <laughs> I hope so. These I'll, are, just, um... I'll, I'll conclude with, um, that's why I'm glad I have a savior. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 of course, invite further discussion of these topics. I, they fascinate me. I think they're really important. So thanks for your thoughts. Okay. Uh, I think, uh, I think we're all set. looks like everybody who wanted to speak got to speak. I'll double check, make sure I didn't miss anybody. But before we get out of here, Robert, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, no. Uh, thank you all, everyone, for showing up week after week. And um, yeah, we'll, I'll see you guys next week. Yep. And as a reminder, next week uh, on the 22nd, that will be the last study for the year. We'll take the 29th off and we'll be back on the 5th of January to resume. As a reminder, if you missed any part of the study or you'd like to listen back to prior studies or read uh, Robert's Bible study blog posts, just head on over to the Bible study page of my website. It's linked on the homepage and you can find all of your Bible study resources there, including getting contact, uh, getting in contact with Robert or with me. Uh, thanks for joining tonight, guys. Appreciate it very much. We hope to see you back here next Friday and Fridays going forward at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Have a great night and we hope to see you next week.